0: Well, we're going to move on, and we've been studying in Genesis uh, for these last few weeks, Uh, started in Genesis way back in January. And when we started, we we recognized three different phases of the book of Genesis, right? There was an introduction to God's power and his authority. He spoke with his word, all creation into existence. He created for himself male and female, that they would image forth his image throughout all the earth. And God is introducing us to who he is. And then what happens is that the orientation that we had becomes disorientation in Genesis 3. Adam and Eve sin against God. They, they disobey God's commandment. And so sure enough, we become disoriented. And we see... The fruits of that disorientation, even this morning, as as we talked about Cain in Genesis 4, uh, has the sinful nature that he disobeys God. Uh, We see uh, God brings judgment in Genesis 6. He floods the earth, and we're kind of seeing the ramifications of that even here this morning. Uh, See, we're kind of getting familiarized with the disorientation that's been brought about because of man's sinfulness, because of our rebellion against God. So this has been our, our series so far in the book of Genesis, but I want to move forward into the book of Exodus this morning as we start off. Um, as we look at the way God describes himself in the book of Exodus, uh, there's a story where, where Moses is, is up on the mountain with God, and he says, God, show me your glory, and as God kind of hides Moses in the cleft of the rock, and he pushes his hand over Moses' view there, and then as he passes by, he describes himself. And listen to the words that he uses. He says, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, But who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. See, God shows himself in this passage and he's describing himself as as one who's merciful and just We've seen this throughout our time in Genesis. It's it's a fitting description, isn't it? Because it seems like as soon as we, we have uh, what we feel like is an understanding of who God is, uh, God comes along and kind of reorients that understanding, doesn't he? He kind of uh, kind of uh, adjusts it in our minds. So we've been looking at Genesis 6, and we've seen justice as God kind of... Uh, brings a flood upon the earth, but we have also seen mercy toward Noah and toward Noah's family. And it's just like God to kind of come along this morning and kind of even tweak our understanding that we thought we had. So this morning when we come to our passage, we, we see this big idea, God delights to show himself merciful. God delights to show himself merciful. Merciful. And specifically, we're going to see this in three different phases. See, first, God gives mercy to Noah in chapter 8, verses 20 and 22, and then God gives instruction in verses 1 through 7 of chapter 9, and then God gives His promise, and verses 8 through 17 of, of chapter 9 as well. And that's kind of going to be our three phases as we kind of dig in here this morning. And I want to call you to kind of uh, just listen in for a few minutes. I'm hoping to be about 25, 30 minutes this morning. That's a uh, good hope, right? We'll see how that all works out. God gives mercy in chapter 8, verses 20 and 22. Look with me there. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. See, the first thing that Noah does is he gets out of his own quarantine in this boat for like 365 days. He gets out and he makes an altar to sacrifice to God. When Noah gets out of the ark, he builds this altar and he starts offering one of every kind of clean animal to the Lord. And it's described in verse 21 as this pleasing aroma to God. Look what God promises in light of this in verses 21 and 22. God vows to never again curse the ground or destroy all life. These are the three things that God says in his heart. I will never again curse the ground because of man. Now, this is kind of confusing, right? Because if we went back to chapter 3, verse 17, we saw that God cursed the ground because of Adam's sin. Well, that's not the curse that he's undoing. This is probably more of a reference to what happened in Genesis 6 where God's going to flood the earth uh, that curse, that's what he's speaking of. He's never going to perform that again. More likely, God is saying, I'm, I'm not going to add additional curse to the ground. This is, uh, that is what the flood was, not just a cursing of the ground uh, to wring thorns and thistles, but this is a, a wholesale destruction of the earth. The second phrase in, in 21, he says, neither will I ever strike down every living creature as I have done. See, not only is God going to curse the ground or not going to curse the ground, he won't destroy every creature as he just did. And we might know that uh, later on, God will bring judgment on the earth, but there will be some who go on in existence, right? He's not going to destroy everyone again, right? Uh, so God's going, promising that he will never strike down every creature. And then finally, in verse 22, he says, while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, it shall not cease. See, as long as the earth remains, as long as God... Uh, is faithful to his promise that these regular rhythms are going to continue. Seed time, harvest, day, night, cold, warm. Those things are going to continue. It's actually an encouragement to us now that when it feels like the world's falling apart, there's a God who stands behind it and says, I'm not going to do this again. I'm going to allow these regular rhythms of life to continue. And so God says this in his heart at the end of chapter 8. And then he starts to play it out in chapter 9. And so what happens in in chapter 9 verses 1 through 7 is God's going to approach Noah and he's going to give his instruction. Look at chapter 9 verses 1 through 7. God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat the flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And your lifeblood I will require, uh, and for your lifeblood I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it, and from man, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for for the life of man. Whoever sheds sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you, be fruitful and multiply. Increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. See, the first thing that God tells them uh, to Noah and to his family as they get off the ark is to be fruitful and multiply. It sounds familiar, right? We've already heard this way back in chapter one, when God created man, he tells Adam and Eve, Hey, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it, right? And he's repeating that commandment as he's kind of restarted humanity. In fact, he, he such an emphasis that he says it in both one verse one and in verse seven. He's kind of just reiterating his points. Uh, it's here that God restates his desire for man to continue on reproducing, to continue to fill the earth with his image bearers. If we were to go back to chapter 6, and remember in verses 11 and 13, uh, man had filled the earth with violence. They had filled the earth with, with uh, kind of uh, just this anger and aggression. And that's what we saw back in chapter 6, verses 11 through 13. Now God is calling mankind to reproduce and fill the earth with his image. He goes on in verses two and three, and he equips them to fruitfulness, and specifically in in regard to animals, kind of a, a strange little passage here. But in verses two and three, he's saying, hey, these animals that you formerly had dominion over, now they're afraid of you. They have fear of you. And, and what he's saying is he's saying, uh, because your, your heart has sinfulness, they're going to engage you differently. Why? Because in verse 3, God gives them permission not just to eat plants, but to actually eat these animals. Praise God that this passage exists, right? I love steak. <laughs> but yeah, there's, there's something here where God is saying to us, hey, this is a means by which you can be fruitful, right? A means that I'm providing for you. And he goes on in verses 4 through 6, and he kind of turns his attention in a different degree. Because man had been so violent, now God is starting to lay out a, a parameter by which mankind can exist. And So when he gets into verse 4 through 6, he's, he's laying out this thing. He's saying, uh, you shall not eat flesh with its blood, that is life, right? You can't eat that. And your lifeblood, I will require, or excuse me, and for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. That if somebody spills the blood of man, that their responsibility is not to that man, but to God. God is the one who's requiring a reckoning. And so God is laying out this parameter to say, we're no longer going to have humanity marked by violence because I am going to be the one to whom they are reckoned. I am going to be the one to whom they answer. And he's laying out this pattern uh, so that there's accountability there. Well, in verses 8 through 17, Uh, We see that God gives his promise. So so, uh, God gives mercy to Noah in 820 through 22. He's given us his instruction about how we can eat animals, how we should have dominion over the earth, how we should be fruitful and multiply, what happens to those who are marked by violence. And now he gives us his promise in verses 8 through 17. Look there with me. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you, When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all the flesh that is on the earth. See, there's three questions that God answers about this covenant. We might stop and just say, what's a covenant? What, that seems like an outdated word, right? Well, really, it's just a promise. And what they used to do in the Old Testament was they would, uh, they would take an animal half and they would split this animal down the middle in half and they would lay one side on the right, one side on the left. And as you would make a covenant, you and the person that you were partnering with, the person you were promising to, would walk between the halves of these animals as if to say, if, if I break my promise, let me be like one of these animals that are split in half. Let me die. Let my blood be shed uh, like these animals that are there. It's, it, it's really uh, highlighted when, when Moses in the Old Testament in the book of Exodus is spraying blood on the people of God, saying, uh, this is your responsibility. And they say, if we break this book of the law, then our blood be upon us. This is what, what is happening here with Noah. God is making a promise to Noah that Noah has no responsibility in. And really, this unconditional covenant that God is establishing, it's its between him and all creation. So that's the first question that we see answered in chapter 9, verses 8 through 17. With whom? Who, who does this covenant apply to? There's really three different groups, right? There's Noah himself and his family. There's Noah's offspring. And then there's all living creatures. See, all of these groups of people are kind of brought into this, or all these groups are brought into this promise or this covenant that God is making. See, the covenant is with everyone on the ark and everyone who comes from those who came from the ark, which is all of us. God has made his covenant, not just with Noah and his family, but with all those who come from Noah and his family's line. So we ourselves are a recipient of this covenant that God's making, The second thing we say is, is for what? What what exactly is God promising? And he answers this in verse 11, right? He says it with such clarity. God promises to never destroy all flesh or destroy the earth by flood. Look at verse 11. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by waters of a flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy all the earth. See, God's promising, hey, I'm never going to destroy all the earth again. I'm never going to do this where I just wipe out all of humanity or I just wipe out all of creation. We've already said this. You might say, what about in the end times? God's going to bring judgment. Yes, he absolutely will. But he's making all things new there. He's not destroying all things. He's rejuvenating and renewing all things. There's this huge difference between what happens here in Genesis 6 through 8 and what happens in the book of Revelation where God makes all things new. So the third question that God answers for us is how, how are we going to know? How are we going to know that God's promise is true? And, and God provides what he calls a sign. A sign is just this, uh, sometimes it's a miracle or sometimes it's a symbol. Uh, here it's a symbol of, of something that, recognizes the promise of God. And so in verses 12 through 17, God promises that he's going to hang his bow in the clouds. Now, I'm not a smart man. And so for the longest time, when I looked at this, I just always assumed that the word bow referred to a rainbow. You know, it was the same thing. But if you really look at the words usage throughout the Old Testament, what he's really talking about is his bow and arrow, his war, his weapon of war. So to speak. And it's really fitting in this context that that really what God is describing is He's saying, I'm no longer going to engage humanity through through this instrument of war. I'm setting aside that tool for right now. I'm no longer going to bring about death and destruction. So we look and, and the passage concludes in verse 17. God said to Noah, This is the sign of the covenant that I've established between me and all the earth, this rainbow that fit, fits in the clouds, this hanging up of the weapon, weapon of war of God. We might step back and say, what exactly does God have for us here? What, what do we have in this passage? What, what is it that God really wants to teach us and instruct us? See, Noah starts off and he offers this sacrifice to God. And God responds with, with this promise to never again do what he just did. In chapter 9, we see this restart of creation. God gives instruction. God gives promise. And he makes this covenant with us all so that we can never, that he'll never destroy the earth again, that we can have assurance that he's not going to interact with us again. But we might just stop and say, why? Why has God changed his interaction? Why does God meet Noah and his family with mercy and instruction and promise when the rest of the world received judgment? Why does God do this? It seems like God just kind of turns on a dime the way he interacts. See, our passage even highlights the change. If we were to kind of look at at chapter 8, verse 21, in fact, you can look there in, the, in your Bible now. He says, And the, when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. And really, it mirrors what God had already said way back in chapter 6, verses 5 through 7. you can, just flip back in your Bibles for a second. Look at, at Genesis 6, verses 5 through 7. Look at the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thought of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created. You see, there's a, a similitude here between these two passages. First, in chapter 6, the Lord sees, and then the Lord speaks. Right, The Lord sees, and he assesses the heart of man, and then he speaks. So he sees that the wickedness of man was great in chapter 6, verse 5, and that every intention of the heart was only evil. He assesses the nature of man. And then he says in his heart, I'm going to blot out all of man from the earth. Well, we see this kind of played out again in chapter 8, verse 21, right? The Lord smelled the pleasing aroma of God. And then he said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground. But notice what he says after that. This is really interesting. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. See, one of the things that hasn't changed from chapter 6 all the way to chapter 8 is that man still has a sinful, wicked heart. We might stop and ask, then why does God deal differently with Noah? Why does God show grace to Noah and show judgment to the rest of the earth? I think the answer is in this offering, this sacrifice that that Noah makes. Verse 20, Noah built an ark to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings unto the Lord. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, see this concept of the pleasing aroma that God smells from the sacrifice of Noah, it's like it changes his his interactions with Noah and with Noah's family. See, this this concept, this pleasing aroma, actually plays itself out throughout the Old Testament. If you were to fast forward kind of into the books of the law, you would see it constantly describing uh, the sacrifices, the burnt offerings that were made on behalf of, uh, of people in the, the Israelite camp. It was a way for um, when they were consecrating priests in Exodus 29, they would offer this pleasing aroma before the Lord. It's this way that uh, he would throw a a piece of meat on a fire and then the pleasing aroma would kind of satiate God. We have to stop and ask and say, what's really going on here? Does God just really love barbecue? Because I'm kind of a barbecue guy, right? Does God just really love the smell of meat? Is that what's really happening? Well, no, it's really, it's a prefiguring of of a coming sacrifice, a coming work of atonement that was going to be made. And Paul actually taps into this in Ephesians chapter 5. We read this this past summer. In Ephesians 5, Paul says this. He says, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. See, Paul describes the atonement of Jesus as this fragrant offering. And I think that when God smells the offering of Noah, he's looking forward to this time when Jesus would become the true sacrifice, when Jesus would become the true atonement for Noah's sin and for my sin if I have faith in Jesus and your sin if you have faith in Christ. And what God is saying is he's saying because Jesus laid down his perfect life, it's like a sweet aroma appeasing the wrath of God, so that now he can interact with his people with grace and kindness. He can bring instruction to them. He can guide them. He can be present with them because of the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ. See, what this requires is it requires that that God would be perfectly pleased with the sacrifice that's made. And so when Jesus lays down his life at the cross. We backtrack a little bit to his baptism. And we see that God in heaven looks down upon the son Jesus. And he says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. So when Jesus is laid upon the altar as the sacrifice, the aroma rises to the nostrils of God and it appeases the wrath of God so that we can be recipients of grace and mercy. This is the fundamental aspects of the gospel. The gospel is not about me being made healthy and happy and whole. The gospel is about my sin being atoned for by another and my guilt being taken away by the righteous life of Jesus in my stead. See, here's the truth this morning. You and I can't atone for our sin. We cannot make atonement for the wrong things we've done. It's impossible for us to make our wrongs right. I was just thinking this week, I was reminded of a a friend who had this dog And the dog would like love to catch animals, like they catch a bird or a squirrel or whatever else. And they would bring it to the doorstep for the owner. Like, hey, look what I brought you. I brought you this gift. I brought you this amazing bird. And there's this dead animal laying there for the owner, right? And this is what our righteous actions are like. This is the, the good deeds that we try to do. We're, we're bringing them to God, these dead things, and we're just laying them at his feet saying, aren't you pleased with this? Aren't you happy with this? Shouldn't this cover over all the other wrongs that I've done? Shouldn't this be enough to satiate your wrath and your anger at all those other things that I've done wrong?" but we're really just dropping dead things in front of God, hoping in some way to appease him. There's no amount of good action that can somehow outweigh our bad action because we fundamentally have just this broken sense of what pleases God. We don't get it. It's just like the animal that thinks this bird is somehow going to make his master love him more. You and I can't bring any good deed before God that makes him pleased with us. So if you're checking in with us this morning and you've, you've never heard this message, I just really encourage you to reach out. My, my email address is just jason at gcctroy.com. Check in with me because I think there's no more important message than what we just described. You cannot uh, do away with your good or poor works or your sins uh, just by doing better works or good things. We need true faith in the sacrifice of Jesus to atone for our sins, for our wrongs. But maybe you're here and you've constantly checked in with us. You've been with us uh, all along. And this morning, I just want to encourage us that, that God delights to show himself merciful. But Sometimes we delight to show ourselves put together, to show ourselves competent. Paul says that God told him in the midst of his struggle and his adversity in 2 Corinthians 12, God told him that his power is made perfect in weakness. And yet we as Christians so often just want to engage our life through uh, this way of just seeming like we have it all put together, right? We we have our social media posts and we push up all the things that are are right and good about our life. You know, we, we show the, the meal that we had and we showed this fun game night that we had with our kids and we do all of these things and we show ourselves to be kind of fulfilled and happy and having this perfect idealistic life. This morning, what God calls us to is to be recipients of mercy, to be ones who, who trust in the atoning work of Jesus Christ, not in our ability to self-atone See, Jesus' work shouldn't just soothe God. It should also soothe his people. Jesus' death and his resurrection, uh, you know, should not just appease God, they should also bring joy and delight to me. You know, we're in a tough season right now. Right now you're kind of stuck in your living room, and I've held you hostage so much for this uh sermon but you're stuck you're stuck in your house Uh, you you're afraid perhaps you're uh, running out of toilet paper whatever else might be going on you have a tough season uh, in front of you and I keep telling people we have no idea what's going to happen tomorrow We, we have no idea to make any plans about what tomorrow holds for us what things might happen down the line but here's the truth If you are in Christ, God has given Jesus as an atoning for our sins so that all of our stress, all of our anxiety, all of our difficulty can melt away as we consider that God takes away his wrath at our sin. We are blessed to be brought into his courts, as Psalm 65 says. So you and I are recipients of divine mercy. And because of that should be all-defining. We should be soothed just as God is soothed through the atoning work of Christ. I pray that that might be the case for us this week. As we face difficulty, as we face hardship, that we might remind ourselves of the goodness of God in the gospel. And that we might, even as we're trapped in our house and we've had the same dinner for four nights in a row or whatever else might happen, that we might remember the goodness of God in Christ. You realize that even if God strikes you down and you're in Christ, you're fully provided for. You have the promise of eternity. We don't have anything to fear because God has granted us His precious promise that He would bring us into His presence for all eternity. I want to pray this morning that God makes us a people who cling to the message of the cross, who really are soothed also by God's pleasant aroma in the sacrifice of Christ and that we find hope in this difficult time. Let's pray. Lord, we we thank you for your grace and your kindness. We thank you that you have given us mercy that we didn't deserve. We thank you, Lord, that our, our righteous acts are like filthy garments before you. We cannot make atonement for our sin, but we need your grace to make atonement for us the perfect life of Jesus laid down on the cross so that we might be resurrected with him in hope, that we might have our sins and our wrongs forgiven, that we might walk in newness of life. We pray, Lord, that you would allow us to cling to that promise this week. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In closing, I want to read Jude 24 and 25. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Let's go back to our lives and go through your day realizing that God is the one who can bring us into his presence through the death of his Son, Jesus we love you. I hope to see you soon and uh, let's have a great week. See you later.